Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. David Way, Portfolio Manager of Fidelity Long Short Alternative Fund, is today's guest. As investors focus on the daily market moves and wonder where rates are heading, David notes it's important to consider how higher interest rates could affect company performance over time. Today, with host Pamela Ritchie, David shares where he's seeing opportunities, provides an update on the current positioning of Fidelity Long Short Alternative Fund, explains how he approaches short selling, and unpacks how interest rates affect the housing market. This podcast was recorded on August 30th, 2022. And one more note before we get started, if you're looking for more market insights, circle Thursday, September 8th on your calendar. Fidelity's Vivian Sue, Director of Product Innovation, is hosting a Reddit Ask Me Anything event from noon until 2.30 p.m. Eastern. All are welcome to stop by and ask their questions about markets and investing. Head to the Fidelity Canada subreddit to participate. That's reddit.com slash r slash Fidelity Canada. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy, or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. David, a bit of a reminder, if you don't mind, on the setup of this fund. It's a long, short fund. To what extent can you short the market? To what extent are your investments long? Just give us sort of the one, two, threes. Yeah, sure. Uh, The Fidelity Long Short Alternative Fund is a long, short portfolio that consists really of two main parts that uh, are working together. There's a long portfolio that consists of about 130% of the fund's net assets and our very best ideas, you know, put together in a portfolio designed by myself and a short portfolio of around 30% of fund assets um, that really reflects our analyst views as well as my own views of companies that are likely to underperform both the market and the long positions in the fund. So in general, I think the key message really is that along the long short fund widens the opportunity set, especially during periods of volatility, um, helps reduce the overall volatility of the fund by having uh, a part of the portfolio that's attacking opportunities that are profitable when the market is challenged or perhaps declining. And you know, more importantly, over the very long run, remains 80 to 100% net exposed to the market over time to benefit from longer term market appreciation that comes from you know, the evolution or sorry, innovation um, that we see over time working its way into GDP growth and stock prices. You have a pretty fascinating way of looking at the markets. This sounds like um, an interesting time to have your mix of kind of eclectic ideas sometimes, the way you get into the ideas and looking at companies, ultimately bottoms up. I know that's that's the way you begin and look at things, but I mean, we have so many different things going on right now. Let's let's begin with some of your views on the macro situation, and then and then we'll kind of drill down into what that means in terms of your investing. But um, we've heard from sort of an economist perspective. I think we've all read headlines on what Jerome Powell said in a very short address. 
Um, what does it mean for your style of investing? The, the Fed is resolute at this stage, it appears. Is that what it appears like to you? I think that's the message they're trying to deliver. And I think as an investor, one of the things I try to do um, is keep things simple. And the way that I look at the world today, there's a few things going on. You have uh, a reopening in China combined with an economic slowdown where there's anticipation of um, stimulus to come in the in the coming months. Um, the second thing that you have is, you know, clearly a uh, political and energy crisis in Europe that seems to be pushing that economic block towards recession. And then, you know, as we get closer to home and sort of the core of uh, where the fund looks in North America, we have, you know, clearly an inflationary environment, a interest rate and monetary condition tightening that is ongoing. And the market's really trying to sort out who are the winners and losers um, from that period. And so um, I tend to be a bottom up investor, but I am macro aware. And I guess the way that I kind of bring this all together is to understand that, you know, people are concerned about macro tightening. They've looked at some more recent playbooks, whether it's the, you know, the GFC or other tightening cycles as you go back to the 70s or 40s. And they've and the market has tried to place their bets at a at least a sector level about how they think things are going to play out. And as a bottom-up investor, one of the things that I need to do is dig in at a sector level and look for inefficiencies where perhaps a group of stocks has been sold off because there's concern about how interest rates might affect demand. And you know, there might be really good companies in there, whether it's because they have a product cycle or they're a smaller company gaining market share. They may prove to be less economically sensitive than that top down sector view. And those are the kinds of places where I'm like trying to dig and sort through this top down macro environment and find really interesting companies on the long side. And of course, on the short side, there's you know a lot of headwinds that you can point at as investor. Um, and it's really it's kind of really interesting time right now where the list of companies where things could um, change materially and get worse versus expectation um, is kind of a long list right now. So as a long investor, you just ignore that. And as a short investor, it's a great place to dig in to try to make money. OK, well, everyone wants to know what's being shorted. So let's start there because <laughs> it's yeah. every, like eternally fascinating to see uh, what's going on on that side. What? What can you tell us? Is it, I mean, is it a sector call, for instance, or how how much sort of uh, subtlety do you put within that? Well, it's a. It really depends. So I think there's, for me anyway, I kind of go back to my framework um, for how I think about short selling, and for me, there's really three key things that I try to attack in the market when I'm looking at short selling ideas. Um, there's one bucket that. You know, traditionally is like less of an important bucket for me, but is important now. And that's what I call a hedge for long, where I might be taking a longer term view on an ultimate economic recovery and what I think is a great business trading at a depressed valuation because everybody's worried about higher interest rates and recession. And I may be uncertain about the timing of recovery, but I have high confidence that when we look two, three, and four years out that this company will be making a lot more money than the market expects um, and generating strong returns for shareholders. So that's one area that right now, and it, it could cut across all kinds of sectors. It really depends on where I find, you know, kind of the matching long idea where I find shorts. The second bucket is what I call ESG detractors. And these are companies that really fall into the bucket where they could be an environmental company um, whether they're focused on decarbonization, alternative plants, 
um, plant or alternative meats, um, or they could just be promising to solve another environmental problem. And unfortunately for shareholders of the, those companies, the promises they're making are quite large and built into market caps that aren't supported by what I think they'll, the ultimate profits of that business are. So I can take a bet that there are companies out there making big promises that they can't keep, and I can go short those businesses. And even though we've seen the Inflation Reduction Act, which provides some targeted incentives that are quite interesting and, and meaningful to some companies, but that there are other companies that they're just... They don't have a product, they don't have the technology, they don't have the management team to really commercialize their business in a way that's going to allow them to take advantage of what are clear long-term trends. So that's kind of the second bucket of areas where I look for shorts. And an example of that might be, you know, a company like Beyond Meat, which operates in the alternative plant-based category. You know, the stock's obviously down meaningfully from last year. I think it's down around, you know, 80 to 90% from its peak. But Here's the challenge. Um, sales are declining meaningfully within the category. Um, they're losing market share within the category. And so they've had to cut price at the very same time that their input costs are going up. So this is a company that's losing money on every plant-based hamburger patty that goes out the door with no end in sight. And I think they might have, you know, four to five quarters of cash flow remaining to support their business. And they've got debt outstanding. So it's a really challenging position for a company like that in an environment like this. And so as a short seller, you could take advantage of those opportunities where, you know, if you're concerned about a category losing market share, it can actually be exciting because you can short the company that you think is set to lose um, in an environment like that. And the third bucket, so that, that fits with the ESG detractors, I'm guessing, does it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And the third bucket is what I call classic financial shorts. So one of the things that we've experienced in this environment is that, you know, I said this at the beginning of the year, sort of my two key things that I was watching was, you know, just our long march towards whatever the new normal is um, for our economy. At the well time, as, did you think, sorry to interrupt you, but at the time, yeah. did you think it would be a long march? Because um, and we're obviously not talking about the month of March, which is when a lot of the, the Ukraine stuff started at the end of February, I guess. But I mean, did you think, did you think it would be as long as it is right now? Or, or are we kind of on track? I'm curious. I think it's been really, um, it's been really different by sector. I think we saw leisure travel come back like wildfire. And I think it's, um, it's been messier than I expected. Like we've seen, you know, airport delays, Globally, I think we can all look at whatever our local airport is. Mine is Pearson. And we have seen sort of the logistical apparatus of flying and travel really struggle to keep up with what is, you know, surging demand at or above 2019 levels. Um, you know, the whole theme of re revenge travel. We've seen hotel rates, you know, skyrocket, rental car rates skyrocket. And so we've seen a lot of demand and the sector, it's it's been very messy, but there, there really has been a strong increase in volume. And then you have other sectors where I have been surprised at how long it is. I would have expected that by the third or fourth quarter of this year, we would be facing a very normal automotive production. And we're still kind of in the, it's, it's maybe in some ways worse than it was a year ago. And so we do remain on this long march towards normal in important sectors. And that's interesting to me because it creates opportunity. It creates opportunities on the long side 
for companies where I don't think investors are being patient enough to what strong 2023 and 2024 could look like as recession or not, the automotive industry sees steadily increasing production volume. I also think it presents opportunities on the short side for companies that are not well positioned to weather this really difficult storm of low production and high inflation. Would you say valuations on sort of the long side of your portfolio, are they, um, are valuations high for the things that you're long? <laughs> yeah. So I think, I think I'm being very cautious about, you know, companies that trade at meaningful premiums um, to the market. So we're always looking at stocks, you know, you know, how attractive are equities in general, how attractive are individual stocks relative to your alternatives. And so one of the things that, um, I'm really looking at um, whether there's any stocks in the portfolio that you know might trade at high valuations, you know, in absolute terms, and you know, really stress testing the investment thesis because I think with the interest rate environment we're facing, there is clear downward pressure on equity valuations and the price earnings multiple. We saw a meaningful contraction. I think it was about six points of price earnings contraction um, through from the peak of the market through to the trough. We've seen the market regain some of that uh, premium, and we've kind of now settled into a fair value range. I would say like the, you know, I'm not a macro investor, but the equity market might be fair, fairly valued to slightly highly valued relative to kind of where we are in the interest rate cycle. But, you know, setting all that aside, if you're a company that trades at 25 times earnings, you better be doing something really special where I can look forward five to six years, see very strong organic growth. You're generating a current level of profitability that is highly supportive of the business. And this is where I put my short selling hat on. It's if when I'm looking at a long investment, I ask myself, you know, what's the earnings profile of this company? Is it very high quality earnings? Are they relying on stock-based compensation? Are they doing a lot of acquisitions to drive growth? Or are we seeing an earnings profile where that sort of headline earnings number is dropping down to cash? And there are companies out there that trade in that kind of 20 to 25 times earnings that are generating a lot of cash and support their value because they have a lot of growth ahead of them. And so that's a good example of a company doing what you think is yeah. special in that case. That's right. um, so because there are so many uh, moving pieces with cost of capital going up with interest rates going up and what that's going to mean ultimately for for companies uh, in a variety of different ways. There there could be a lot of room for for companies to fall. You mentioned, you know, equity premiums depending on the company. Is this fund especially useful for a so-called once we get through some of that a pivot by the Fed? Yes, I think so because one of the great things about this fund is that I can play offense on both the long side of the portfolio and the short side of the portfolio. So I can look at where the best risk reward is in the market at any given time. And so as conditions tighten, one of the things that I can look for are, you know, vulnerable companies um, that, you know, whose share prices suffer because people worry about the balance sheet or their operations and their ability to navigate um, a difficult period as a fragile company. And one of the things I look for when the market's pivoting is I look for the, you know, the beginnings of, you know, what some people call, might call a junk rally, where some of these companies that have been shorted um, have poor business prospects, 
you know, the short thesis plays out and you start to see the company, you know, stop responding to bad news and start responding positively to any good news. So one of the great things that I have is I have a microscope that I can put on the market to see where things start to get better. And that was actually one of the things I saw during the COVID downturn where you saw, um, you know, it was like March, 2020, the world is over. There was like, you know, no good news to be had. And I still remember the day where the Fed came out and said, we'll buy high yield bonds. And, you know, a number of companies that I had been short that were down like 90% were up like 20% that day. And I'm like, okay, my bankruptcy thesis on all of these companies is over. And so I need to cover those shorts. And moreover, I need to start looking at, you know, the best of that bunch to include in the long portfolio, because we're going to go from bad news to bad news being bad to bad news being good news. And I think in a long short fund, you can kind of chase those opportunities on the way down and you really get a front row seat for when things, you know, stop getting worse and start to get better when you start to see positive change. So fascinating. Do you use options with your strategy? It's a good question. And the fund can use options, but um, I haven't used any options to date. Um, and it's not part of the, the current sort of fund strategy. It's um, and there's no, you know, uh, exotic derivatives. This is a long short fund that only uses the leverage from shorting stocks to add to the long portfolio. So there's no additional financial leverage in the fund and there's no additional leverage in the short positions. Um, it's strictly equity shorts. Fascinating. Let's talk a little bit about um, interest rates as they affect the housing market and maybe not specifically house prices, but how you might invest around the thesis of where the housing market is going, what it's experiencing, what that means to the companies um, that are connected to it. Uh, do you see those as interesting areas to look for shorts? It's, um, it's an area where, you know, there is probably current opportunity and looking for shorts where companies that have been a little bit more resilient than the home builders, like the home builders are like the purest play way to short a, a bearish view on sort of housing starts and margins for selling new homes. Um, and then you also have the added overlay of, we had this huge boon in renovation spend during COVID as people were stuck at home and do your self activity. Did you do a renovation? I did. I I actually had a renovation planned uh, before COVID and it was definitely a, a white knuckled process. Unfortunately, mine was complete um, and I'd ordered everything. So uh, it was a smooth process, but I wasn't alone. Um, you know, no. on my street, everybody was busy doing uh, painting and other things because they were at home and sort of something we all know and we're starting to see the home renovation centers like Lowe's and Home Depot laugh those numbers. Um, but it's a really important driver of the economy. And so we're seeing the baton get passed from do it yourself to contractors who might have had deferred demand because they only had so many crews last year. And so, you know, there's really been a smoothing of the post COVID demand. But like getting back to housing and rates, you know, housing is the economy in many ways, and rates are the most important driver uh, of housing activity. So it's a very difficult market, particularly like you could take the US. Uh, as an example, where you've seen home prices appreciate, interest rates start to peak up, you know, purchasing a, a house now is like 50% more expensive than it was last year based on prices and interest rates. So this is clearly at a minimum room for pause in the um, resale market. And it is absolutely 
room where you could expect declines in new housing volumes um, as we get into 2023, because you know there's a lot of houses already under construction. Home builders can only move so fast. So this is really kind of a next year event where we'll see the proof in the pudding. Okay, so that's so interesting. And it's connected, of course, everything is connected, but it's connected to the story for consumer demand and for those that are paying more for their mortgages, essentially, and therefore crunching and energy um, and crimping what they can spend elsewhere. Do, do you anticipate that to be maybe a structural shift? I think there is certainly a, um, there's a medium term theme where I could think that things like revenge travel, um, experience, like experiences over things was a long-term secular trend prior to COVID. So Live Nation, the concert operator, you know, had a very strong secular theme around increasing the number of shows, increasing ticket prices as people sought experiences sort of rather than sort of physical goods. And I think we've seen a continuation of that trend, um, really just a resumption after the COVID interruption. And I think just given all the disruption we've seen around travel, high cost of travel, high cost of transportation fuels like gas or, or jet fuel, I think you'll see that demand get spread over longer periods of time. And as a result, I do think you will see multiple years of consumer services outpacing consumer goods in terms of how we spend our time. So interesting. You know, it's, it's very European. Save up for the dishwasher. You don't yeah. have for the good one. <laughs> and, and things are getting back to normal. Like, you know, New York rents are up meaningfully as people return to New York City. I mean, against all odds where people thought people would depart from, to the suburbs forever, you know, here in Toronto. Florida. Yeah, Florida. And we're starting to see significant increases um, in apartment rents here in Toronto. So you're starting to see the populations kind of get back to business um, in terms of how they live their lives. And as amenities reopen in cities, people taking advantage of that. So let's get into the question of sort of everything surrounding the discussion of energy commodities more broadly as well. You've said um, elsewhere that bringing down energy prices or the relief from that is is not enough. We have inflation in other places and we know that and there's the discussion obviously of housing that we've been having just now as part of it. Um, what ultimately though do you think that energy prices, the commodity story uh, might produce over the next little while? I mean, do you, you, lo do you go long or short on that? <laughs> Well, I think it's, you know, it's, it's a very interesting time for energy because when you look at the inflationary playbook, one of the things that um, I'd mentioned is that in 2020, uh, in October, when I launched the fund, one of the things that I had flagged in my um, sort of view of the world is that I thought it was important to have sort of select net energy exposure in the fund. So I was actually short. Okay, wait, take us back there. Okay, okay. Sure. Fall of 2021, where was oil? So it had fallen out of bed. Yeah, 2020. It had made it back to what levels by then, roughly? I think at the time, like oil was like, you know, 40 $45. You know, gas prices were significantly lower. We were oversupplied. You know, the companies had over leveraged themselves in some cases. And cash flow for the sector was really divided between you know, the low cost producers who could still find a way to make money at low prices and high cost producers, which were struggling under you know, heavy debt load from acquisitions and production growth and were really in a difficult spot. And so at the time I thought you know, there was 
Really, like there were long and shorts available, but over time I wanted to have net exposure to the sector because when you look ahead from the, you know, really unprecedented monetary and fiscal stimulus that we experienced in the sort of the post-COVID period that we could see inflation and like we didn't have any idea at that time that it could become this fast and be this severe, um, but it was important to have energy exposure because that's the one place to make money when inflation expectations go from low to high. And so I've had a long-term exposure to energy. Um, I think Canada produces a lot of, a couple of really important industry champions that you know have long life assets, low cost of production, a path towards you know, carbon reduction, which I think is going to have to be an important part of the story for our oil sands producers, you know, over time. And, you know, more importantly, it's uh, in a safer political region. And, you know, I didn't fully anticipate the political upheaval we would see in Europe, but, you know, clearly now North American energy is structurally advantaged for the foreseeable future relative to other production basins. And so I do think that the cost curves shift shifted, it's created more of an opportunity for domestic producers to do well for a long period of time. And so what I'm constantly doing is I'm looking at the shorter term trends in the commodity price, because that drives kind of the near term prices uh, volatility, but also the two to three years of, you know, super profits that I anticipate that these energy companies will produce. And in some cases, whether it's, you know, fertilizers or renewable diesel or other sectors, the market has priced in kind of a couple of year, really great years and then a return to normal. And so what I'm really looking for is mispricing relative to that kind of base case, that things should be really good for a couple of years. And so I, as of the last disclosure, did have exposure to you know energy and fertilizer, which are two key beneficiary of higher global energy prices. Um, so the fund um, does have exposure to that just based on the view that we've, we really have entered an interesting new period because otherwise we might say, hey, we're in recession, energy demand's gonna fall, these stocks are sells. And I think there could be you know, other much more important drivers for these stocks over the next couple of years. Very interesting. What do you think of the banks broadly, US and Canada? So I think, you know, I'll tackle Canada first. And so I think Canada over the very long run there are a number of industry champions within Canada that make it a great business. There are you know, strong retail franchises with high ROEs. There is a, a mortgage market, which is very favorable from you know, equity returns to banking. And there is a regulator that works with the industry you know, to set high standards to make sure everybody's well capitalized. But you know, having covered the insurance industry, you know, the, the regulator is really there to help smooth bumps in the road. Um, and is much more less adversarial than you might expect from a, a banking regulator. So it's a very favorable operating environment. The companies pay strong dividends and have demonstrated earnings growth over time. So if you look back over the fund's history, you'll have seen you know a couple of the Canadian banks um, be larger positions within the fund. You know, broadly speaking, I've been underweight the Canadian banks in favor of other opportunities in the diversified financial space. Um, but that's kind of all in the rearview mirror now. And what we're facing going forward is a mortgage market that could be very difficult. As we all know, Canadian mortgages are short dated. We're starting to see some of the early pain in variable rate mortgages. And, you know, if a five-year mortgage 
um, you know, on average is maturing in two and a half years. If rates are at this level for the next two and a half years, you know, it's going to create significant financial strain on people with mortgages um, where that consumes a big part of their income. And so, you know, I do think that the operating environment for banks in Canada will be challenged on a go forward basis. You know, valuations, you know, you know, don't seem to be extreme at one end or the other. But the thing about financials is that you don't know uh, something's going wrong until it's too late. And things tend to happen, you know, whether it's credit loan loss provisions or other sort of bumps in the night. Um, these things tend to happen as surprises. And so as an investor, I'm always asking myself, you know, what's the best risk reward? You know, if things are fine, can these companies keep chugging along with decent dividend yields and fine earnings growth versus, you know, if something goes wrong in the Canadian economy and things really break or uh, start to deteriorate in housing beyond sort of a, you know, a modestly negative scenario, then that would create a very challenging environment for the banks. Okay, so so just as a final word, a theme of resilience seems to be coming through in what you're saying right now. That sort of, would you sum that up as, as part of your positioning? Absolutely. I think in this environment, there's a lot of uncertainty. We're coming off significant periods of monetary growth, which stimulated the economy in ways we've never seen. And so the kinds of companies that I'm looking to build in my portfolio have three really common building blocks. They have visible revenue growth because they have pricing power, a unique product, or some kind of um, business cycle that is really in their favor from reopening or something else, where you can have very high confidence that you know revenue is going to grow in a way that outstrips inflation. The second thing that you need to believe is that there is a strong margin structure underpinning that business. Um, and so you can be very confident that as revenues grow, it's going to accrue to equity holders and not somebody else. And then the third and sort of final bullet, you asked me about valuation earlier and the scenarios where I would own a higher multiple business, but this is really an environment where you want valuation on your side. You want expectations to be managed down to a lower level. And we're starting to see companies trade in that sort of market multiple or below like 14, 15, 16 times earnings that are still growing with great margins and returns, but just where expectations have come down. And that's sort of a safety net that I really look for. Okay, David Way, thank you so much for taking us through the fascinating strategy that um, you invest on behalf of investors in uh, the Long Short Fund. Great to speak with you. Thanks for your time. Thanks for your time, Pamela. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. You can visit fidelity.ca for more information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter. Thanks again. See you next time.